Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Neha Navarapu, and I am the host of this channel. Today, I'm thrilled to be in conversation with Dr. Ijlal Nakvi, author of the book, Access to Power, Electricity and the Infrastructural State in Pakistan, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2022. Dr. Nakvi is an Associate Professor of Sociology at Singapore Management University, and this is his first book. Welcome to our conversation. Uh, Welcome, Mithlal. It's so great to have you on New Books Network, and I'm really excited to chat about your wonderful book, Access to Power. But before we begin, uh, we would love to know more about you. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you became a sociologist, perhaps? Uh, Sure. Um, So hi, Sneha. Thanks so much for inviting me to be on the podcast. I've listened to you uh, and the New Book Network many times. (laughs) So uh, it's fun. It's fun to have a chance to talk about my work in this setting as well. Yeah. So my path to becoming a sociologist is uh, is a bit of a convoluted journey. Um, I started out as an undergraduate studying economics, and I also did a, a minor in maths. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, from there, I think when I finished my BA, I, I remember asking myself very pointedly, "Where are the people?" Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the the best things I did in that time, or at least the most intellectually compelling ones, were one, I did an independent research project. Uh, and secondly, uh, I took a political theory class, which got me thinking about, you know, sort of more compelling questions. But uh, I was very much uh, ready to be done with school. I became a business consultant, worked for about three years in the US. Wow. Okay. Um, making uh, business models for cable companies that were transitioning <laughs> from analog to digital systems, right? Uh, so I spent a lot of time doing that until I realized, like, you know, this is really not for me. Uh, mm-hmm. But in between, I had done some work uh, for a government uh, client uh, and I wanted to work uh, with uh, with government. And I ended up in Pakistan, uh, mm-hmm. which is where I'm from. 
and I worked for the Ministry of Science and Technology, their IT and telecom uh, division. And I think this, the one year that I spent there was, it was important in so many ways because um, the minister was a very dynamic personality. He had one advisor whom he relied on for sort of everything. And the advisor had basically two staff members, one secretary and me. So everything the ministry did was sort of channeled across my desk. It was a great place to be as a young person trying to figure out how government works. Mm -hmm. um, and after that, uh, I did a master's degree in international affairs. Uh, that was at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts. Mm -hmm. And there, I think, stuff started to come together. Um, Aisha Jalal was very influential, uh, as well as uh, Andy Hess. Mm -hmm. um, and they had been learning a lot more about the history and politics of the, of the region of sort of Southwestern Asia from Iran, Pakistan, mm -hmm. uh, and the Middle East more generally. Um, and within there, I started to pulled together a series of interests that were actually based in Iran. And I wanted to look at the institutional structure of the, the seminary system and the way that um, specific religious leaders rise in prominence and legitimacy and the kind of claims they can make mm -hmm. on the public and uh, uh, and the legitimacy that they have. Uh, so it was that, with that set of interests, I connected with Charlie Kurzman, mm -hmm. uh, a sociologist at UNC Chapel Hill, who became my advisor. Um, and I basically asked Charlie, does political sociology have a home for someone asking these kinds of questions? Uh, and he said, yes, very much so. Uh, so I ended up at, uh, at UNC and the first sociology course I ever took was the <laughs> introduction to, um, uh, you know, sort of sociological theory um, uh, in, the, in the graduate program. But thankfully, it worked out well. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. And um, I love the, the textured journey that you have undertaken in your request yeah, to become an associate. I had no idea what I was doing at most points <laughs> along the way, I think it's fair to say. I yeah. mean, that, that gives me hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we would also love to hear from you how you came up with the idea for this particular book. So when did you start thinking about electricity in Pakistan and how did those curiosities become a book project? Yeah. So uh, when I, I entered the uh, the sociology program, my interests were more in sort of uh, uh, things to do with uh, with Islam and democracy. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, that uh, was I, I was very interested in pursuing a project that was based in Iran. I was learning Persian at the time. Um, and uh, but uh, this was around 2005. Uh, mm -hmm. And it, the the direction in Iranian politics at that moment made me feel like there was really very little chance of doing this project or doing this project safely, let alone as an outsider, as right. a foreigner. Uh, so I had to find something else essentially to do. Um, and so from Iran, I moved towards Pakistan, uh, where I think I had an advantage in terms of already uh, having language proficiency. Mm -hmm. um, and I moved from studying the seminary system to thinking about a different look at like how uh, states, uh, how political claims are made with legitimacy, but I wanted to look at tax systems. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew I wanted to do this in person. I wanted to collect data that involved me experiencing things firsthand. I think I had a, I, I was uh, proficient with uh, sort of quantitative approaches, but I also wanted to combine that with firsthand experience. Mm -hmm. um, and then after I thought more about tax systems, uh, which is sort of at the heart of fiscal sociology and sort of well-established political uh, questions. But my fear was that the, this would again be a very dangerous project to undertake, mm -hmm. personally trying to ask questions about what kind of taxes they were or weren't paying mm -hmm. in Pakistan. So I wanted to look at a way that the state mattered in everyday lives. This is another reason not to study taxes in Pakistan because it's uh, about 1% of the population who are paying direct income taxes. Mm -hmm. I mean, many pay indirect taxes, but not direct taxes. 
So I wanted a way that the state mattered in everybody's lives on an everyday basis. Mm -hmm. And somewhere along wondering how I could find that, I realized that it was about electricity because, mm -hmm. um, you know, from the lived experience of uh, people in South Asia and all over uh, the global South, you, you uh, irregular electricity supplies are very common. So I had, you know, many personal memories of sort of like, oh, the light's gone again, you know, sort of mm -hmm. gather around in the living room with a candle <laughs> because that's literally all you could do. This is long before people had, you know, backup power generators mm -hmm. or truck batteries or, you know, uh, small scale photovoltaic systems like they do now. Um, so this was a very tangible experience, one that mattered to me and one which everyone could relate to, because the other aspect of electricity is that um, for the most part, and I know there are exceptions, that rich or poor or whatever you're doing, industry, commerce, business, you rely on the state, you rely mm -hmm. on the grid, you rely on a public utility to deliver service for you in Pakistan. And as anyone of any means in an environment like that, your first choice for yourself and for your family and for their well-being is typically to exit the state system for education, for transport, water supply, whatever you can do. You get out of public provision because it's low quality. But electricity, certainly at that time and still today, I would say almost everybody relies on um, on the electricity grid. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's what made me think that electricity was an appropriate way to explore the kind of questions that I was interested in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, as you were speaking about power cuts, I was—I uh, remember just joking recently with a friend of mine that uh, my nieces, who are born in this post-generation backup generation uh, generator sort of generation, mm -hmm. don't quite know what it's like to play on Takshari in the in the in the darkness, and you know, have no concept yeah. of boredom, right? Like in in that sense, where you're ah. waiting for the power to come back. Um, yep. But yeah, I think. Uh, electricity and its various uh, shortages um, shaped mm -hmm. um, sociality in everyday life, absolutely. And yeah. so many critiques of the state uh, in the everyday there. Um, and you just mentioned that you were proficient in quantitative methods, but you really wanted to get a first-hand experience of, um, of yeah. these questions that you were asking. Mm -hmm. And I think that is reflected so very well in the methods that you use in the book project, right? So it's um, clearly mixed methods. There is um, quantitative analysis, but there's also like fabulous ethnographic data. So how did you go about collecting data for this project? What were some of the issues you ran up against? And how did your social positionality shape your access to data? Okay, thanks for that. That's, uh, I think, a fun question, because again, it's like, uh, in a book, I think all authors do this, we present it as if we were know what we were doing when we, were, when we set out <laughs> to write it, right? But I, I remember starting out uh, the research, and the biggest challenge was like, how do I get access to this sort of uh, uh, service delivery uh, dimension of the electrical utility? Right. Um, and uh, so that was one set of challenges, but the, the data wasn't available to me. And even the, the quantitative data wasn't available to me. And even as I spent extended amount of time in that system, I couldn't get the data that I wanted. So that's why, like, at least uh, this was my dissertation project. At least at that time, it was entirely ethnographic and uh, qualitative, but also looking at historical documents and such. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, I had proposed a mixed methods project, couldn't deliver it, but um, happily the quantitative side of it was sufficient to start mm -hmm. with. But my positionality um, there is complicated. And here, like, um, uh, there's there's no way to answer that question except to give you, I think, more personal detail than uh, might be expected. But like, um, my father's Pakistani, but my mother's Austrian. So mm -hmm. I don't look, I mean, like physically, in terms of caste and class markers, 
in a society which is very much um, colorist and has a set of orientations towards particularly Westerners that carry with them, uh, uh, you know, uh, colonial memories and that it's, it's like, there's, there's a lot that's going on there that's difficult to unpack. But basically, um, I straddle uh, insider and outsider distinctions in my person just by showing up in a place like I'm the one going to the field, but I might be the one who's actually exotic in that environment. Mm-hmm. So this is great for field work, I found, because mm-hmm. I can talk to people and uh, like my, my Urdu is sufficiently provisioned and I'm going to speak it in a way that lets people know that I actually have a sense of local belonging, mm-hmm. but um, uh, they're going to look at me twice because they're like, what is this guy doing uh, here? Uh, mm-hmm. in, in a particularly in like a distribution company utility office where I'm not otherwise going to be. And so there are other aspects of that positionality, which are like, for example, um, my family are, are Shia Muslims. And to someone with that background or even most Pakistanis, they can tell by my name. So mm-hmm. uh, that revealed certain social networks, which were, uh, I mean, I didn't exploit them intentionally, but falling into them, this became a great source of introductions from time to time. People would put me through their networks um, and process me in the way that they understood me, uh, regardless of how I might be trying to present myself. Um, And so uh, I was rather shameless in terms of, you know, I think like all good field workers, you talk to absolutely anyone and everyone who will will speak to you. And if you want to talk to me because I happen to have this last name, brilliant, you know, that's good enough for me. Um, and, And on we go. I had other people who tried to sort of proselytize and convert me into one particular sectarian identity or another, mm-hmm. which, you know, that, those are awkward conversations, but you navigate all of that. Um, mm-hmm. But I found that um, simply being uh, present in these spaces, there would be enough people willing to start talking to me that, uh, uh, that I could uh, navigate the conversation from there. Mm-hmm. But um, access to those spaces was was very difficult to obtain. Um, my only sort of introductions were at kind of the top level because I'd previously worked in government. Mm-hmm. I knew some sort of senior level but retired officials. Um, and from one, they connected me to the other, to the other. Uh, and until I had to sort of go down the hierarchy, it's relatively easy for, I found, to get access to sort of policy level type people, but that wasn't the work I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So they had to introduce me sort of downwards into the operational hierarchy of the utility. And there it was entirely who I could convince based on getting someone to think that I was a sufficiently harmless student, which I was, mm-hmm. um, uh, until uh, they would they would talk to me in enough detail to tell me about their work. And in terms of field work, it's like, frankly, you just show up again and again and again <laughs> until you can, you can see enough of uh, things uh, within the different domains of your interest. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Sorry for the long-winded answer, but I haven't even touched on the, the quantitative data yet. Um, I think it took me all of this experience, the ethnographic experience, to figure out which quantitative data mm-hmm. I wanted, who mm-hmm. had it, and how to get it. And I did not get uh, what I wanted until relatively recently. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew, um, the, but it was so quick to write that chapter because I knew exactly what I wanted to do with it and how to work with it and the questions to ask with it. Right. But um, I didn't have the uh, the quantitative data. This was on Lesco until um, maybe a year or two before the book was published. Um, but the other work was all done uh, much beforehand. Mm-hmm. 
No, I, I think it's actually really um, useful to hear, especially as someone who is working on a book project right now. And uh, actually, my uh, historical chapter is a bit shoddy. And, you know, I keep thinking that I think I now know what I really want to look for. So it's become yeah. a lot more clearer, actually, post-ethnographic fieldwork. Uh, but before yeah. that, it was just like looking for a needle in the haystack. And I'm like, I have no mm -hmm. idea what I'm supposed to be looking for. But yeah, I think sometimes it's it's good to be reminded of the fact that fieldwork doesn't end with your dissertation and sometimes like the most yeah. important data just like shows up uh, much later than one might have imagined possible so I actually appreciate yeah. the long-winded answer mostly <laughs> because it gives, gives us a real sense of what fieldwork is like and how it all culminates into into a fantastic book so thank you um, but uh, so access to power the book and I really love the title by the way um, takes um, <laughs> takes electricity production and distribution as a window into exploring the relationships of powers and uh, processes of governance in Pakistan. Uh, you contend that you want to go beyond the tired narrative of state incapacity and actually scrutinize why reforms and political will to improve the power sector don't actually tend to produce positive outcomes. Uh, you show what is instead. Uh, happening through a much more complex analytical layering of national city level and individual level logics. And the book structure reveals this narrative strategy. And I really appreciated the funneling of the argument through this sort of part by part nested analysis. And one of the most compelling findings and arguments that you make in the book is that state capacity in Pakistan is chronically uneven and that this unevenness works in specific ways to suit and benefit regions and groups that hold power and inequality by design, as you put it. Uh, I hope to get into the nuts and bolts of that later in the interview, but for now, could you tell us a little bit about this unevenness being a strategy of state rule, maybe with an example, and also speak to how you position this argument in the classical and contemporary debates around state power and governance in the global south? Uh, thanks, Neha. Thanks for, you know, the the question reveals the, the care with which you've uh, digested the book. and. Um, uh, I will try my best to address all of those points. Um, so <clears throat> I think where I can start is the, the idea of the unevenness of uh, state capacity in Pakistan and how it's, uh, it's a strategy of rule. Um, and one thing that I found very striking uh, when I was uh, doing the analysis is that uh, if you look at the there's a national level, there's a national map of Pakistan in which I sort of shade the uh, different regions according to the electricity losses that happen uh, within that uh, geographical area. Um, and what you see is that, you know, sort of the Punjab operates in a more uh, formal and uh, efficient manner. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, the uh, Sindh and Khyber uh, Bathunkhwa um, have sort of a lesser level of performance, uh, and in Balochistan, uh, it's even worse again. Um, and when you, uh, there's, you know, I look at losses and then also like who's actually paying their bills, it becomes even more stark um, that you see that the unevenness actually repeats uh, patterns that we see uh, throughout you know, other aspects of Pakistani governance. And I think I, I try and make that claim uh, because it's important to for, for my book in terms of saying that electricity represents uh, governance more broadly, certainly in Pakistan. Um, and that map, like that, that map could be a number of things. It could be uh, maternal mortality. It could be, you know, effective delivery of education, like which kids are functionally literate by uh, a grade five. 
Um, it's like the unevenness of uh, the, the way that public goods are delivered across the entirety of the country is reflected um, uh, in that map. Um, and again, if we drill down into a more local level, what I found within a city area is that a similar degree of unevenness operates, that this inequality is chronic. It happens at multiple levels that even within, say, the, the capital or Lahore, uh, you'll find areas which are uh, served uh, very poorly mm-hmm. uh, in terms of electricity and the utility simply isn't even able to uh, collect its bills effectively. So one uh, reason I call that inequality by design, which means really that that outcome is the product of the uh, uh, conscious and strategic decision-making, even if uh, people aren't uh, deliberately choosing the specific outcome, all the steps along the way are considered um, and repeated. and they, they, what they do is they reproduce relations of domination uh, that uh, that exist in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so uh, what one uh, uh, does with that is to sort of contrast it against um, a notion that uh, governance is driven by institutions. Uh, and that would imply that sort of institutions are, are weak in different places. And, and I think one thing that happens sort of at the national level, what you see is like actually the, the legal structures and sort of the organizational dynamics of uh, uh, organizational structures of these entities are are completely the same, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. Uh, across the country. And what what's more interesting is that within the city, it's like it's not just that the organization uh, is structured similarly; it's the same organization, the same people, the same physical infrastructure and equipment that mm-hmm. delivers these very different levels of service. And so, what the state is not doing is um, the work of basically establishing a relationship uh, with its citizens in these areas where it's enforcing on them a uh, uh, a setting where they must pay their bills uh, actively in order uh, for service delivery to be uh, complete. Um, and that bad level of service delivery is uh, is matched by sort of a disengagement uh, from different aspects of the uh, of the population, and so that map reflects a differing degree of incorporation into the state um, and its functioning uh, across multiple dimensions. But the one that I can measure specifically is um, uh, electricity. So, in terms of uh, a specific example, I think uh, it's worth looking at um, uh, Balochistan. Balochistan is uh, it's fascinating because it's been driven by insurgency across. Um, many time periods, but, you know, uh, still currently mm-hmm. uh, from the early 2000s till today. Um, and uh, what you see is that almost no one in Rajasthan is, is basically paying their bills, but the service delivery environment is, is equally terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and this translates directly into the complaints that the insurgents have uh, about the manner in which their resources uh, from their land are exploited for the benefit of others. Uh, and for which um, they, the village people, are not uh, are benefiting appropriately. So, uh, in this way, it sort of maps directly into um, aspects of Pakistani nation building and the incompleteness and the ongoing process of that nation building, as reflected in um, electricity. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Yeah. Um, you'll guide me if I missed out aspects <laughs> of that uh, excellent question. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. No, no, yeah. this is great. And, uh, you know, I would... Uh... Uh, in love for you to speak a little bit about how this sort of uh, really interesting argument kind of speaks to the more traditional conceptions around state power and you know how you situate this argument in the larger domain around in political sociology for instance mm-hmm. so there i think uh the the, the strongest sort of uh work that influences particularly development uh approaches to development in both i mean uh perhaps less so development studies, which is mm-hmm. which is quite critical in many respects, but development mm-hmm. as it is practiced, mm-hmm. uh, comes from this idea of governance being driven by institutions. And mm-hmm. here, I think, uh, you know, we'll be perhaps talking about uh, uh, the World Bank and other development actors. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but um, uh, more generally, this idea that Pakistan is insufficient in its institutions because it's... Uh, it's not, you know, a Denmark, and uh, mm-hmm. or, or you know, these are the sort of paragons of uh, uh, of governance where our things uh, work effectively. And if only we had better institutions, we could make that transition. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's not that, you know, I mean, anyone can recognize the uh, the the failings of the Pakistani power sector are mm-hmm. kind of well established by now. Yeah. Um, and you don't, you don't, uh, by the time someone has spent a reasonable amount of, of time looking into it, you'll see like where the chronic problems arise and the way they've continued to arise. Mm-hmm. But it, the ability to make that transition is what's absent. And it isn't about the way in which institutions are designed necessarily. To me, um, it, uh, the way my argument fits uh, sort of uh, what people are doing in, in political sociology is much more uh, bringing in line with the politics themselves and the way that um, uh, states effectively uh, uh, can be developmental mm-hmm. uh, through a process which uh, uh, takes into account um, the, the motivations and expressed desires of you know their own populations in terms of their uh, uh, freedoms and capabilities, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So uh, there's, uh, um, and here I, I think there's an idea that I put forward in the book about um, governance being uh, emergent. And right. one reason I wanted to pick up on that is that uh, the the challenge of trying to transform a governance in a top-down way mm-hmm. uh, is that it's resistant to those things because it's historically contingent and uh, shaped by uh, these very strong political relationships which bind the underlying sort of uh, nation together. Um, and you have to look at this sort of sub-state level in order to begin to, to understand that. I think those are some of the directions that uh, I wanted to, to push the discussion in uh, political sociology. Yeah. yeah. 
And that that's really, really helpful. And it actually um, it is a very neat segue into my next question, which is about how in chapter three, you explore how development practice intersects with state power and capacity. And specifically, you explore uh, a puzzle, right? Uh, the puzzle is that why is it that international development agencies like USAID, World Bank, Asian Development Bank support governance interventions in Pakistan despite persistent failures in achieving desired mm -hmm. outcomes in terms of a more expansive and equitable power distribution system? So I would love for you to speak a little bit about what explains this puzzle. Yeah, and I think I should mention uh, one little bit of background there, mm -hmm. uh, which relates to how I did this project is that I had been in Pakistan uh, throughout my field work. I didn't actually return to Chapel Hill to write up. Mm -hmm. uh, I did my writing up while I was based in Pakistan and I took a job as a development consultant for the USAID project, which is working on governance reforms. Right. Um, I did that for multiple reasons, um, but what it, uh, it was great for me in terms of uh, putting me into this apparatus. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I was employed as a contractor under a, a USAID consultant. I was on this energy policy project and I was physically sitting in the Ministry of Water and Power uh, working on uh, the public sector uh, uh, governance reforms program for electricity. Mm -hmm. So I was right in that environment. Um, and uh, it was brilliant in some respects because uh, it gave me a lot of personal access to the people who were doing this work. Mm -hmm. And those people do... Uh, similar kinds of work in uh, in other locations. Some of them had done similar kinds of work in Pakistan because once you dig into it, you realize that uh, the positions taken by these international development actors are quite consistent over time. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing that they aren't confronting typically is that uh, their policies are not being implemented. And uh, they're well aware of that. Uh, it's a source of frustration, and it's typically blamed on political will. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, to blame it on political will is rather a, um, it's a cheap exit from grappling with the strong, powerful reasons why states act the way they do, mm -hmm. uh, even when it means persisting with an inefficient power uh, sector, mm -hmm. right? Like at the time that I was there, one of the many things that was uh, posed was that, okay, we'll disband the unions because, mm -hmm. um, you know, they'll interfere with our desire for reform. Right. It's like, okay, great. What are we talking about? A hundred thousand yeah. plus public sector employees. You think this yeah. is going to go easily? Yeah. Um, you know, and that, that uh, discussion didn't go anywhere. Then, you know, there was, uh, uh, it, because of the, the strength of the resistance, but also the manner in which uh, the approach to institutional reforms proceeds. So by that, I mean, uh, the only way that an entity like USAID can do that kind of work is that they have to hire private sector consultants because mm -hmm. they don't have the capacity themselves, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they just literally don't have enough people to run a project like this. Mm -hmm. And so when they put out a tender, it has to be a competitive tender. And among the many things that uh, a bid will be evaluated on is your is the track record of that agent of that entity in delivering similar projects elsewhere. So. Uh, what pretty much has to happen is that uh, the contractor that comes in will have this decontextualized knowledge that they bring to apply uh, within this local environment. And mm -hmm. so the contractor themselves actually doesn't keep all the people on staff. They uh, have their own uh, sort of 
human resource uh, um, effort of then, you know, putting in a bid, locating people with appropriate CVs, then trying to uh, engage them on this project. And all of this kind of ad hocism means that people come in typically without a great deal of local knowledge, but they are versed in what it means to do power sector reforms elsewhere. And then the contractor is bound by strong terms and conditions, uh, obviously because they've bid on a contract and now they're expected to deliver it. And then you add another dimension to it when in a very sort of politically sensitive environment, like, you know, this is during the global war on terror when uh, the United States is giving a substantial amount of aid money to Pakistan to do projects like this. Right. The congressional scrutiny on projects like that is severe. Mm-hmm. So you're also, I mean, and, and I, I'm not even necessarily saying that that's a bad thing. Like if I was an American taxpayer, wouldn't I also want to know uh, right. where my government's sending the money? But what this means is that it's incredibly difficult for uh, the person uh, who's involved in sort of the, the policy reform effort to do anything that's sort of a very contextually informed and um, a little bit dynamic, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're very much bound by the things that they've committed themselves to, that they're bound by the things that the terms of reference are compelling them to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're working on a tight timeline where a lot of their emphasis is towards spending money within a certain amount of time, for example, the burn rate. So mm-hmm. within development studies, these things are well critiqued. And there was a, a, a brilliant article by Andrew Natsios who sort of uh, looked at this and I cite it. And he describes a counter bureaucracy, like the level of scrutiny means that uh, within that setting, it's very hard for the consultants to even do that work effectively. But I want to mention that, you know, I worked alongside these people. They're deeply knowledgeable about the power sectors, you know, power sectors internationally, uh, how these systems work, some of the problems that uh, happen in them. And they uh, like to me personally and to this project, they uh, gave a lot of brilliant feedback, which Mm -hmm. made my work better. Unfortunately, we did not achieve the governance reforms that we were all there uh, to do, but we did have brilliant conversations about the power sector, what was wrong with it, and mm-hmm. what might have been a better approach. Yeah. Thank you. That's uh, that's really very, very interesting. And um, it does begin to make us think more expansively about like what kinds of questions we want to ask about failure, right? And I'm thinking also mm-hmm. of like you thinking through James Ferguson's questions around like how mm-hmm. we ask better questions around what uh, comes across as a failure of these sorts of projects, right? And really like rethinking yeah. the very analytical apparatus that we use to evaluate um, what is going on. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah with, I know I saw James Ferguson. Yeah. But like I don't think uh, I like uh, I felt like uh, that was one of the influences on on my approach to this work is like the idea that Pakistan works actually like you know even though by many metrics uh, the state is doing a terrible job at these things right. like there are consequences and those yeah. consequences are not accidental in the way that they're sustained and the patterns that reproduce yeah. themselves over time. Yeah. Yeah, and the consequences are perhaps not even in the purview of the the. Uh, goals that are stated on paper, but they have like different kinds of consequences. Yeah. And um, yeah. yeah, and so rethinking what we mean by failure is uh, very, very uh, useful, I think. And the way you've talked about it is, of course, different from what Ferguson does, but I think it has a similar kind of, um, uh, <laughs> similar kind of rethinking uh, that we can use in the questions that we ask. 
Uh, but for someone like me who loves thinking about infrastructure and urban governance, Chapter 5 was extremely, extremely interesting. I was uh, so taken okay. by it. And uh, in this chapter, you scrutinize how residents of a Kachi Abadiya's quarter settlement in Islamabad attempt to formalize their claims for individual electricity meters. And you compare these experiences mm -hmm. with relatively affluent Islamabad residents who already have these formal rights. Could you speak about what this comparison yields in terms of our existing understandings of formality and informality in the face of an uneven state capacity? Mm. Okay, thanks. Uh, thanks, Naya. I had the, that, uh, the Kachiabadi experience was a really interesting one for me because uh, they, um, this was in the environment where more than anyone else, uh, the people talked about their rights. We mm. have a right to this. We have a right to that. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's the people who are denied formal access who are most conscious of what they're being denied. Right. Um, and and so uh, when I when I spoke to them, um, uh, they described themselves as being on the cusp of achieving uh, regularization, uh, mm -hmm. which means that they would all be sort of formalized in their occupancy. Um, and they were in an intermediate stage at that point in time, uh, which uh, meant that they weren't necessarily going to get kicked out, but they also didn't have full access to uh, formal sector rights, which would have included a, um, uh, an electricity meter. You couldn't get an electricity meter uh, mm -hmm. without a no objection certificate, which meant that you were a legal occupant of the land. And so long as that uh, occupancy wasn't regularized, they couldn't uh, uh, get the individual electricity meters. Mm -hmm. And they wanted it and they articulated that desire in language that could have been ripped straight out of the World Bank sort of textbook, you know, mm -hmm. practically quoting Hernando de Soto, like they wanted right. that so that their land would become more valuable and think about the ways that I can invest in my property and so on and yeah. so forth. Yeah. Uh, we can improve the way we live with formal rights, yeah. um, which was uh, which was fascinating to me to hear that argument articulated through um, the squatter settlement residents. Yeah. Um, and uh, so uh, within, within that setting, they had uh, a communal uh, arrangement, um, which was itself uh, highly unorthodox uh, against the formal rules of the state. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was the way that a sort of like compromise had been achieved where, uh, you know, they were given, they were pro provided electricity that they could pay uh, for. Um, and but they had to manage the distribution of it internally. So some families within that environment, right, uh, were able to get a a meter of their own, uh, mm -hmm. an individual formal meter. And I mean, I don't know exactly how they achieved that, but you know, they have done so. But some of them, at least, what they found was that they've entered into now a different set of relationships with the state, which they were ill-equipped to navigate, mm -hmm. right? Um, the one uh, young man I spoke to described himself as insufficiently educated to handle the bureaucracy that right. the paperwork, like once he was, he was given a false bill, mm -hmm. uh, uh, which, um, you know, I couldn't verify, but I'm pretty sure that was correct that he was that, and this is standard practice for the electricity company that they will basically, uh, park, uh, uh, consumption, uh, on somebody else's bill because they're basically allowing it uh, mm -hmm. in a different location. It's a mm -hmm. way of facilitating loss and making the, the record keeping the books of the electricity company look less bad. Right. Um, so he'd clearly, uh, to me, it was clear that he'd been a victim of that, but he couldn't navigate the formal bureaucracy. So what that family chose to do was go back to using the communal meter, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because they felt more protected within that environment, even though there are all manner of predation that can happen within that setting as well. Mm -hmm. the, the, the experience of formality was not necessarily an advantage to them. So that was one thing. 
that came out mm-hmm. is that even though that, that was clearly what they wanted, and even though it's also very evident that the people with better levels of service delivery mm-hmm. have formal arrangements with the state, right? Mm-hmm. It's just that that transition is difficult to navigate. And then so what the, what the affluent residents revealed to me was that in order to both secure service delivery and sustain it in a manner that's useful to them, they had to use all manner of informal uh, connections with the state. Just because you are middle-class, wealthy, educated, and all the rest of it doesn't mean that yeah. you simply approach the state without Tafarish or, or whatever else it is. Like your first sort of action in, in that setting would be to figure out who do I know mm-hmm. so that they can uh, connect me and deal with me as a human being rather than as someone who will be exploited and uh, uh, victimized. Yeah. Uh, and so from both sides, it's like the informality was inevitable. Mm-hmm. And the dangers of formality, I think, uh, the risks entailed in it uh, are something that's being uh, hasn't been uh, fully uh, recognized uh, mm-hmm. in the literature. Mm-hmm. So it was a very instructive experience for me. Yeah. And, you know, I was uh, reflecting back on some of uh, the conversations I had during fieldwork, which was also uh, an ethnographic exploration of the everyday manifestations of state power and authority, but through the lens of uh, traffic and driving, right? So like yet another experience, right. I think that vexes a lot of citizens uh, <laughs> and global south. Um, but, yeah, but it was something similar in the sense of how it was both middle class um, or an, an elite um, aspiring motorists as well as low-income working-class motorists who were bribing state officials, but for very different rationales right. and reasons, right? But like the the general outcome was similar. Like it wasn't as if there was one class of people who were somehow having these, um, you know, non-personal and formal uh, engagements. Exactly. With state. Yeah, and and yeah. to see that reflected in a very different empirical and um, um, and infrastructural context was was very uh, instructive. Like I think there's some thing going on here that um, uh, hopefully a, a more of us will, you know, explore uh, in, in political sociology, just to kind of push back against this um, notion of informality being um, related to specific class, um, right? And... Yeah, exactly, right? The informality is that pervasive that we're all engaged right. in it. And, exactly. uh, you know, people who are of that, I, I think if you've lived in um, certainly South Asia, people yeah. will immediately recognize this experience. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, And in that vein, the next chapter, chapter six, uh, focuses uh, much more on an individual level experience of the state Mm -hmm. and addresses how, as you, as we just actually talked about in a previous question, how governance is an emergent compromise, which I really thought was Mm -hmm. a very provocative and powerful idea. So in this chapter, you show through ethnographic vignettes how government bureaucracy functions under real life constraints and how, um, as you put it, codified rules are wrapped in layers of social negotiations and contestations. Uh, In the chapter that follows chapter six, which is chapter seven, you add another layer to this analysis by showing how culture shapes behavioral interactions in a public office oriented towards service delivery, such as the Islamabad electricity supply company. So could I invite you to tell us generally broadly more about these constraints and the culture that animate bureaucratic worlds in Pakistan? And also, how can we think about governance as being emergent? What are the analytical affordances of viewing governance as emergent? Great. Another uh, another great question. Um, so I think uh, there is... Uh... 
there's different aspects to it. But let me let me start with the idea of governance as being emergent. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, it it comes from or or it, it maps to this idea that uh, I'm looking at the state as a set of nested fields, right? So yeah. these are sort of vertically or hierarchically nested that the individual exists within a city, within a, mm -hmm. a, a sort of um, um, a national level environment. Um, and within each sort of uh, field, each level of analysis, mm -hmm. the process is very dynamic and driven by power relationships. So, uh, you know, the the way that rules are interpreted and implemented uh, is itself um, influenced by the relative standing of the of the players mm -hmm. uh, of the different actors uh, within that setting. And so, uh, at and given that it has these sort of multiple levels, right, um, the fact that it's emergent means that the way that the rules are operating, sort of the rules of the game in a classic Northian institutional sort of understanding, mm -hmm. like these can't entirely be predicted beforehand. So this is another limitation on how we need to see uh, formal or black letter law uh, mm -hmm. uh, rules um, and understand them, right? Um, and so uh, the the national uh, city and individual level experiences are influencing each other. Like these patterns uh, belong with each other. This tying back to, you know, sort of questions of governance reform and their viability in that those things are almost always conceived at a national level sort of pointing downwards. And the complaint of a lack of political will seems to come about uh, when it, it just because like a rule is written or an instruction is given, Mm -hmm. And it isn't being implemented. I mean, it isn't being implemented for good reasons. I think uh, those kinds of changes put an unreasonable pressure on the uh, the SDO, the subdivision officer, who uh, is the officer in charge of uh, local service delivery for, you know, it might be 25,000 households. Mm -hmm. It's like, dude, is there really any serious expectation that that individual can now compel, you know, everyone from uh, uh, police stations, government offices, and so on to now pay their bills, let alone like wealthy individuals, politically connected individuals and all the rest of it. It's just a completely uh, an unreasonable approach to how um, those institutions work at a ground level. Right. So these like emergent compromises are necessary to engage with and understand if one wants to both, you know, recognize how um, the lived experience of everyday encounters with the state takes place mm -hmm. and also how one might uh, go about changing it and changing it for the better. Mm -hmm. All right. So that was the the emergence side of it and why I think that it's important uh, for governance to be considered uh, emergent. And I think the analytic affordances that it, uh, that it used, very nice uh, phrase, by the way, <laughs> um, is that it's, it's pushing you uh, to uh, recognize the, I mean, recognizing the limits of uh, sort of top-down interventions. It's mm -hmm. kind of sad because anyone who's engaged with development on a, on a practical basis, it's like the first thing that anyone will, will realize. No one will advocate for it. And yet the systems only seem to work by enabling top-down um, intervention, right? right? And right. so the, the the analytic insight, I think, clearly is like, how does one navigate those local level dynamics and create change within that environment, mm -hmm. right? So um, separately, uh, we talked about uh, uh, the culture uh, within which, uh, uh, or what we're learning about culture uh, yeah. through uh, uh, studying these uh, behavioral interactions in a public office around mm -hmm. around um, around IESCO, and so uh, we're learning. A, I, I learned a lot. Uh, 
I mean, I talk to a lot of um, the utility uh, employees, mm -hmm. the very low level ones, line superintendents um, and below assistant linemen and so on. Mm -hmm. And um, they, uh, you know, they're themselves in situations where their pay is so minimal, right? At the time that I was there, I think, um, you know, the cash pay for one of those sort of low-level officers might have been the equivalent of about $100 a month. Mm -hmm. um, and the only, and, and they did get benefits and obviously access to benefits was a key uh, uh, sort of uh, condition for them to, to be able to live well. Mm -hmm. But their housing, their sort of the strategies for well-being were only effective at a household level, right? Which means that this one individual who worked in the formal public sector could bring other benefits to a family, which was also going to have to bring in resources from, from other directions, right? Mm -hmm. But it meant that their role within the family setting was often about using their own public position for the benefit of themselves and their families so that they can achieve a decent standard of living, right? Mm -hmm. There, I mean, uh, uh, there are always sort of urban legends about you know, millionaire uh, linemen and things like that. But mm -hmm. this was certainly not true of the people that I encountered, right? Mm -hmm. But what I found was that I was originally apprehensive about like, how do I talk to them about uh, what's normally called corruption? Like mm -hmm. the how money uh, in particular uh, eases certain transactions or makes them possible. And I never, almost never needed to ask anybody about it. They would tell me, and they would tell me in a very matter of fact way that uh, because it was tied to the impossibility of them doing their job without some of that pay. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's because, for example, uh, as part of their job, they would be required to go around different locations in the city, but they didn't have transport provided to them. If they right. did have transport, that transport didn't have petrol, right? Mm -hmm. uh, an allowance for, uh, for petrol to take them around. So the only way to make that money, to make that system even function at the rudimentary level that it was working is for these people to be taking some manner of money. But they were quite, they, they had a, uh, the people that I encountered, they had a strong sort of moral understanding of what they were doing. Mm -hmm. um, and they were very conscious of it. And they were conscious of presenting themselves as uh, uh, not taking money in a manner that uh, hurt the organization or authority that they were working for. Mm -hmm. So it's one thing to take money to expedite someone's paperwork. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, that was, you know, sort of considered par for the course. Mm -hmm. um, but it, what they didn't want to do or what they really looked down on was someone who would basically uh, steal a whole bunch of cable and sell it. Right. Mm -hmm. So they were aware of people who would do that sort of thing and they looked down on them. Mm -hmm. And and it's it's a culture. It's collective because none of this is happening individually. Right. Mm -hmm. It happens within an environment where this is a norm. And for an individual to opt out of it is not only difficult in terms of how do they make a livelihood, mm -hmm. but to be the one officer, the one individual in a setting of perhaps 100 people who refuses to play along mm -hmm. is quite dangerous. And that individual will probably be in very difficult circumstances. I don't mean physical threats, but they'll yeah. be sidelined through some kind of administrative procedure sooner or later. And this applies just as much to someone in the middle of that hierarchy as, as to the top of that hierarchy. You can't uh, uh, avoid that. So their participation is, in effect, necessary and expected, uh, and deviating from that is is difficult, right? Yeah. So there's a whole set of, of cultures around that practices around those practices, uh, which the the the, the bureaucratic employees um, engage in. 
um, and then uh, they're approached very much uh, with those expectations. And so people are ready uh, quite often to uh, uh, to deploy their own uh, social connections to make things work for them uh, or uh, make transactions easier uh, uh, by paying for, for certain things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, as I was reading this chapter, I'm actually teaching a class on uh, the, I guess, the political sociology and anthropology of the state. And mm -hmm. I was making a mental note to include this chapter in the week on bureaucracy, because I think it's such a, Thank you. Um, right. so, yeah, and it's such a vividly ethnographic chapter, which I think um, students will learn a lot from in terms of these sorts of like questions around like culture and morality that come up mm -hmm. and animate the, and we're reading it alongside Bourdieu's uh, bureaucracy, right? Which paints such a different oh, wow. picture of like um, yeah. ob objectivity or like, uh, or even Weber's work, right? And it, this is like mm. such a, a big departure from, uh, from theories of uh, bureaucratic work as <laughs> dispassionate and, um, you know, uh, objective in, or disinterested in that sense. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to teaching it next year. I didn't, um, I, I'm teaching um, Akhil Gupta mm -hmm. this year, but I think this would be oh, yeah compliment to to those discussions um yeah. thanks so much for talking about these chapters in the book and i uh, really enjoyed the the accessibility of the book like i thought it was such complex ideas written in a very clear concise and um, and readable manner and i really uh, appreciated that um but i actually wanted to end the conversation with learning a little bit about what you're working on right now and what we can hope mm -hmm. to read by you in the near future. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, thanks for your interest in the book and, uh, you know, uh, be delighted if you did assign it to your students and please yeah. tell me uh, what they think of it. Um, so uh, having done all this work uh, on electricity in Pakistan, uh, one of the things that I sort of discovered a little later on uh, was in connecting to the Karachi electric uh, utility. Um, and what's happened in Karachi is quite remarkable because it was uh, privatized or rather put under private management mm -hmm. um, in the uh, around 2004-2005 and then uh, uh, run by a private equity group since then. Mm -hmm. um, but what this uh, private management managed to achieve uh, was a really radical sort of progress in terms of the key performance indicators of the company uh, that their losses have fallen from uh, above 30% to now below 20%. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm very interested in understanding how they've done that. I've done uh, a little bit of work there uh, mm -hmm. in looking into it. And it's revealing some really interesting answers because, mm -hmm. um, you know, just as we were talking about uh, governance as emergent and what this means in terms of uh, the analysis that it affords uh, for governance reforms. Mm -hmm. uh, what what I'm learning about the Karachi Electric Utility is that they really uh, did a, a nice job of combining um, sort of uh, uh, a role for local uh, political leaders and social uh, influential individuals mm -hmm. um, to making uh, their reform efforts successful. They didn't try and impose it in, in too much uh, of a top-down manner, but they worked uh, very well with uh, sort of local parties. And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, it's too complex a story to simplify that way, but certainly um, one thing I want to try and figure out or like test more empirically is that how did they achieve this outcome? Were they able to actually transform the behavior 
mm-hmm. of individuals and their relationship with the utility or were they able to or, or you know did they do the easy thing of simply transferring service more aggressively to serve the industry and wealthy individuals and just you know improve their performance by neglecting uh, the poor and actually there's a lot of evidence which suggests that they've changed the, the relationship with a, a wide variety of the city but um, the other interesting thing of that experience in Karachi was that when uh, the uh, privatization originally happened, um, the backlash was was tremendous. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were riots, there was violence from the unionized workforce. Uh, and at least four or five years, I think, it was sort of a cautionary tale against the possibility of privatization. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really the other aspect of why I want to look into it, is that privatization is so often put forward as this simplistic solution to everything right. that yeah. could be wrong with the uh, public sectors and particularly in in, uh, in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet we're not, uh, you know, if they did the hard work of making that uh, change effective, then we need to understand what it is. Mm-hmm. And so that's another aspect of it is that like, I would like to tell um, a story which has hopefully some more constructive lessons and then being, being able to do it in a way which combines different types of data, because one thing that I'm getting from Karachi Electric is the is spatial data. So I'm able to represent mm-hmm. it on maps, mm-hmm. which is a different way to communicate uh, the, the message of, uh, of what's happening in the city and what has happened. So mm-hmm. that's the project that I have in mind. But I mean, it's a it's a longer one, um, so, yeah. uh, but it's what I'm looking forward to uh, to working on the next couple of years. That's amazing. And that sounds really, really interesting. And I look forward to reading um, what comes out of this uh, project. Um, all the mm-hmm. best for that. And again, once again, congratulations on on this book. And I hope you're taking your time to celebrate it and you know, <laughs> revel in the glory of the book having been published. Yeah, definitely. It's a good <laughs> feeling. Thank you for your interest in the book and for uh, arranging this interview. It's really been a pleasure to, to talk about it. With you. Thank you, Michelle. Take care. YouTube.